0: bottana, questo cazzo non si preoccupi, per stegno per conto mio signora, lei non c'entra ci facciamo una bella zuppa di pesce fresca marinara però attenzione che l'altra volta c'era troppo peperoncino Viene a rompere la minchia pure sulla zuppa di pesce e io il peperoncino ce lo metto una bottana di sopra una bottana di sopra Quei l'amico mare traditore Ma come cazzo si fa a cappari Madonna, c'ho una voglia di un caffè Credo.
1: Che caffè, signora
0: Grazie. Ma cosa ti è messo Cos'è questa pagliacciata Ah, non ci da, da cambiare la macchietta,
1: o oh, no Ma,
0: Scusi, Gennarino, vuoi fare lo spiritoso
1: Io Spiritoso Ma se sono sempre incazzato, signora
0: Gennarino, che installaggio trovato di indagare a Binerà Bruna Secondo me, è a sciscia Eh Questa è Mariana. Mariana. Un mm. bel esemplare di di mediterranei, ma dico. Ma l'ha guardato allo specchio lei? Sì, signora. Me ci guardo, anche perché io vengo considerato bellissimo. Mm. Sì. Da femmine di qualità espette nel ramo, che sono più femmine l'ora dentro di dominio del piede che sia da sopra sotto. E questo è per l'aumento della carne, del parmigiano delle tariffe filotrambiane del giallo e l'aumento della benzina. Si sente ma. Questo è per l'aumento dell'olio e per la cassa integrazione. Questo è per i programmi della Dimmi. Eh, questa è per Leva, è per Lula tanto. È e questo perché ci avete fatto venire, Paola, anche per campare.
2: Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan.
4: Happy New Year.
2: Also back in the booth is Mr. Trevor Gumble.
4: Ah, Happy New Year. Thanks for having me back.
2: On this episode, we are looking at Lena Vertmuller's 1974 film, Swept Away, also known as Overwhelmed by an Unusual Fate in the Blue Sea of August. And on my subtitled version, it was called The Lady and the Navy. It's the story of Gennarino, played by Giancarlo Giannini, and Raffaella, played by Mariangelo Malato. She's a bourgeoisie on vacation with her husband, who has nothing good to say about anything, especially the service on her yacht, which Gennarino provides. They get separated from the ship and end up on a deserted island, where they fight to survive and fight with one another. We will be spoiling the film as well as the 2002 remake and even the 1972 Marco Ferrari film, La Cagna, as we go along. So if you haven't seen any of those, feel free to turn off the podcast and come back after you have. We will still be here. So Sam, when was the first time you saw Swept Away and what did you think?
3: Probably about 10 years ago, I started to get into Vert Mueller's films. And I started with Seven Beauties, which we talked about in an episode last year. And I think Swept Away was probably my second Vert Mueller. And honestly, I am a huge fan of her films. And while I think I prefer Seven Beauties, I love Swept Away because I think... Giancarlo Giannini and Mariangela Mulatto are just incredible performers and they do justice to a lot of the very complicated issues going on in this film and it is definitely I think one of those movies that's hard to recommend to people because without the right context
4: it just seems super offensive
3: which is definitely what she was going for
2: and Trevor how about yourself
4: uh yeah, this is uh my first uh Mueller film. I I was aware of the film as I was aware of the 2002 remake by Guy Ritchie. I hadn't seen it and having seen it, it's definitely not what I expected. I mean, I don't know if this is indicative of uh, her work, but it was definitely not an easy film to sit through or even process. I agree with Sam that it's definitely not a film that you really could recommend to someone without giving them the full context of what was going on. Are you glad you signed up for this one, Trevor? I'm always glad to sign up for this show because I always like being exposed to stuff I probably never would have seen otherwise. So, hey. Here
2: we are. Like you, Sam, I'm following in your footsteps. I started with Seven Beauties last year, and now I've moved on to Swept Away. I guess I'm going backwards through her filmography, though I know she made a lot of things after Seven Beauties, some of varying quality. And I know that she was wooed by America to come on over and start making films over here. She was hugely popular in the States, which I think a lot of people forget There was a moment where I think she had four different films playing in Times Square all at the same time. She was on talk shows. She was everywhere. And she's one of these folks where apparently she was not that well-loved by Italian critics, but critics outside of Italy – just couldn't get enough of her. And I completely understand that as someone here in Detroit where people just hate me and, you know, I go down to Baltimore, (laughs) people love me, you know, and I'm sure over in Italy, they would just eat me up with a spoon. But I had heard about this film the first time, many times through of all people, Howard Stern. He used to talk about back in the nineties. I used to listen to Stern when he was on local radio and he would talk all the time about swept away. And he would just use it as kind of an offensive thing as far as, oh, there's this movie where this guy and this woman, they go to this island and he just beats the shit out of her and rapes her and turns her into a slave. And I'm like, okay, that sounds really offensive. Of course, it is a lot more than just that. There's a, there's a little bit more, a little bit more going on in this movie <laughs> than just a guy dominating a woman. I mean, we can see that on Pornhub whenever we want. This has a little bit more to do with politics and class relationships. And then you layer on the male, female relationships as well as that.
3: In this film's defense, seven beauties is way more offensive. This is probably a good one to see for first before you get to all of the insanity happening there. But I do think if you take her work as a whole in every film she has complicated relationships between men and women. Sex is almost always about power and almost never about eroticism. But in some of her other films, she flips the dynamic like seven beauties is a a good example of this, where a woman is in the more dominant role to a, a male character. So this would play a lot different coming from a male director, probably. But I think people who aren't really familiar with a lot of European art house movies and and art house directors, I mean, Catherine Breyat falls under this umbrella as well. I think it's very confusing for people why women would want to make movies like this. I think it's great.
2: Friend of the show, Tanya Modleski, in her review in Jump Cut years and years ago was very critical of the film and was very much about saying, you know, if you wanted to make a movie about class distinctions and all this, why not just have two men on this island rather than a man and a woman? But I don't think that that would have worked at all. I think it has to be a man and a woman on this island alone, because otherwise you start to get into enemy mine territory, or what was the one with uh, Mifune and and uh, 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 Lee Marvin, the Borman film?
3: Oh, yes.
2: So it's like, yeah, no, it doesn't really work that well unless you have the sexual politics as well, because this is so much of politics at the time, and- <laughs> This movie, I can definitely see it turning people off without the rape, without the violence, just because...
3: The characters are terrible. Raffaella will not shut up.
2: (laughs) She is awful. She is the worst type of harpy character that you can possibly get just constantly yada, 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 and just saying inflammatory things just to piss people off. She kind of is Howard Stern in a lot of ways. And just spewing a whole lot of stuff where it's like oh well we should uh, sterilize the poor and do that and just saying all of these awful things basically just to see if she can get a reaction
3: she kind of reminds me of the way that you hear conservatives today talk about socialism and the evils of socialism where they don't actually know what socialism is or what socialists do and they they forget that certain, you know, government policies that are already in place would fall under those umbrellas. Well, like, it's just sort of this term. And for her, it's not necessarily socialism, it's communists, communists are evil. And her husband, who is this great kind of foil, because he's also this spoiled rich guy, but he's way more level-headed and is like, come on. These things that you're saying are nonsense. But it's it's almost like she says them just to prove that she's in a position of power and people have to listen to her. And it's almost like she wants to remind
4: herself of that. You're right when you talk about like these current talking heads on like, Fox News or something like that. Basically, what she's what she's doing is just like parroting what she hears. She doesn't have any thoughts of her own. She has what her political party or whatever tells her is the issue rather than thinking for herself. She's been watching a lot of Fox News because, you know, she's too rich to really pay attention to anything else but herself,
3: which is part of what makes her so insufferable. But that's also kind of what I like about the way the character is written. Because I think you could have a much more passive, insufferable, rich person who is awful in kind of a implied way, but because it's so over the top, I think it's really funny. And I do think a lot about this film is meant to be comedic and satirical, and that's sort of hard to get at first. But that's also something that's in a lot of Vertmuller's Mueller's films, is there's this murky line between what is satire and what is actually sort of meant to be transgressive
4: or offensive with the message she's trying to get across. I don't think being subtle would have worked. I kind of think you have to go over the top to send that message out uh, for what she's saying, you know, about the class system and, and the power dynamics between the uh, communism and capitalism. When you're talking about the power dynamics between men and women, It's kind of like subtlety kind of has to go out the window. You know, she knows that we're not stupid. I think she's giving us a lot of credit by being more blunt about it.
3: It's also important to realize kind of like what Mike was saying, that this movie has to be between a male and a female character. Because if you think about it in the context of sexual politics in italy at this time it's like they're just coming out of a period when divorce was illegal and women couldn't own their own couldn't have their own bank accounts and having it be so over the top especially with her as this really kind of naive rich person who is totally ignorant of the world around her is super important
4: she thinks that she's intelligent and smart but she's really not. I think that she's smarter than
2: we're giving her credit for. And I think that she actually really does believe in the things that she's saying. I don't think that she's just saying them to be inflammatory, but I could go either way. I can see what you're saying. And I could say like, okay, yeah, maybe she doesn't necessarily believe it, but she seems very, very ardent about all of the things that she's saying and has such an opinion and won't stop talking about it. I mean, it's very, let's go to, christmas at your conservative parents house
3: she is maybe a little bit more aware than she seems because at the end of the film she's the one who doesn't want to leave the island who says you know we have this great thing going and she seems to be kind of inherently aware that if they leave that will change and so she doesn't want to leave
2: So they're on the boat to begin with, and they're going for this cruise, and he's part of the crew, Generino, and she is definitely one of many people on this boat that are being taken care of by this crew. So they are the idle rich, and that's one thing. And then you have her just spouting off all this stuff. That's another thing. And then she gets Generino in her sights and will not give this man a break, no matter what he does He's doing it the wrong way. You know, he brings her reheated coffee rather than fresh coffee, which, yeah, you're on a boat. Yeah, maybe you do the reheated coffee rather than the fresh because you're going to run out. But nope. He's not wearing a clean shirt when he serves her. He's not doing this. He's not doing that. And it's just this constant picking on the whole time. And it's just so much her showing her status and just rubbing his face in it. And he is incensed. And like today, you know, you're talking about politics and it's like, okay, well, you know, Democrats are a bunch of socialists or communists and yada, yada, yada. And uh Republicans are a bunch of fascists. But in Italy at the time, to your point, Sam, it was like the fascists and the communists and then a bunch of strata in between. You know, there were hundreds of political parties. It wasn't just two political parties at the time. But the communists were a very viable option at the time. And so was fascism. I mean, Italy – Kind of has a thing for fascism. They kind of like it. So it, it was Just very a much a real thing. Yeah. Especially
3: rewatching it this time around, their bickering on the boat, more so even than on the island, reminded me a lot of screwball comedies where these characters are thrown together and they are in this kind of fixed space and can't get away from each other. And seem to not be able to leave each other alone and i'm sure that was intentional i just don't think i noticed quite that parallel the same way the previous times i watched it but especially how like rapid fire the <laughs> dialogue gets
2: yeah this is howard hawk's territory definitely with this patter that she's gotten my God, she talks so fast and so much and so loud. And there was a moment yesterday where we were re- rewatching the film and when my, my wife's like, is she ever going to shut up? It's like, no, no, not really. Like maybe, no. maybe in a half an hour or so, she might get a little less loud, but she is very much going for it. I mean, what a performance Mulatto is giving. And it's so funny because just two weeks ago, we talked about Flash Gordon and there she was as General Kala and Speaking English and not very many lines, but here she is as, uh, Rafaela and just will not stop. And of course, as Americans, we're not picking up on things. I listened to the audio commentary and he's the director of Behind the White Glasses is doing the commentary and he's talking about how Generino has this very strong Sardinian accent while she has much more of a Northern accent. She's talking about, I think she's Milanese talking about how you know the Southerners are so stupid and all these things. And as Americans, I'm just like, yeah, they're speaking Italian. I don't know. <laughs> the subtitles that I had on my copy, as belied by the new name for it, were not the best subtitles in the world.
4: No, they weren't. But,
3: but I do think that is one of those elements that will be really confusing without some context because – This shows up in so many movies throughout the sixties and seventies, this sort of class tension between Northern Italians and Southern Italians. It's sort of like the way people in the North of America think that people in the South are hicks. They're uneducated and conservative and ignorant. It's the same exact thing. But one thing I did want to bring up is there's a part where she calls him black And I think that's super confusing, but that in the 70s definitely was commonplace, was referring to more tanned, kind of darker skinned, darker haired Southern Italians in these kind of derogatory racial terms, which... Not to jump ahead, but I noticed that it's something that also happened in the remake, but it makes no fucking sense in the remake. It's like, why would you put that in? An American woman would never do that.
4: There's a lot of things in the remake that don't make any fucking sense to me.
3: We'll get <laughs> no, it's there. awful. We'll get
4: it's, there. It's, <laughs> we it's, will. It's bad, but uh I, God, when we get to that one, that's gonna be an interesting
3: my internet's going to go down by the time we get to that part in the conversation just, <laughs> just so i don't have to think
4: about it <laughs> <laughs> what's that i can't hear you i'm breaking yeah, up yeah i'm
3: going through a tunnel
4: <laughs> then again why yeah but then again why think about it any more than the fucking filmmakers did did they think about it no they didn't <laughs> no no it was not just at all. the the thought process was hey i'm married to madonna here put her in a movie
3: and she wants to make this and on some level i get Kudos to her for loving this movie. I, I think Mulatto's performance in particular is so amazing. And she was, she was one of the sort of core of actors along with Giancarlo Giannini who worked with Lena Vertmuller a lot. And I think had this ability to just go to 11 for, <laughs> for all of their performances. But like, not everyone can do that. And not everyone should do that.
2: We talked about his hair when we talked about Seven Beauties and how his hair changes through all of Vert Mueller's films.
3: That's amazing.
2: And speaking of Eleven, his hair is at Eleven in this, just with the wildness and the beard, and then he's got those piercing blue eyes, and he is so angry through so much of this because this bitch is just on his case the
4: entire time, and I, it, his wildness just reflects through his entire persona. Primal is the word I would I would describe it. Just very primal.
3: Yeah, he is such a force of nature. I, I didn't really register who he was until probably ten or so years ago when I started watching her films and like Elio Petri films and things like that. But when I go back and watch movies from when I was a kid, he pops up in everything. Like he's just such a force of nature and I think he's allowed to be that way in Italian films but he's way always way more subdued and like like a
1: what's Hannibal. the bond
3: film yeah he's he's in Hannibal he's in some bond films recently i made the poor decision to revisit the dune miniseries
2: Oof. yeah it's
3: awful but he plays the emperor in that i was like what is he doing here
2: eventually she ends up making yet another Irresponsible Demand wants to go see some caves, and so they get on a dinghy, her and Generino, and go off, and of course, he's like, this is a bad idea, and we know where we're going to go from there. They're going to end up stranded. They're going to end up on this island. And I do really like that there is a lot of comedy to this film, especially when he is talking about how they have to be very careful as they're getting towards this island because there are so many rocks there. And she's like, this is indestructible. You know, she is just so certain about that raft, but I think because her money paid for it in her mind, you know, this is, it says it's indestructible. It's indestructible. And then. Cut to them <laughs> <laughs> walking up onto the <laughs> island, him carrying this deflated dinghy with him and them going up there. And then that really switches, begins pretty quickly to switch the tone of it. And even I love the way that Vert Mueller shoots this. There are so many times where he is, he's literally at the bottom. You know, he's a southerner. We were talking about he, lives below deck when it comes to the boat and every time we see him he's coming up from the bottom to serve her and to serve the rest of the rich rich people now on the island what do we have we have him up on top of a mountain looking down at her and talking about how she's not going to get her coffee because they're on a deserted island but i love that they immediately switch the power dynamics and now he's up top and she's down below and It goes from there. It just becomes this whole thing of him now being in charge. He's a man of the earth and knows how to do things, knows how to catch fish, knows how to catch an incredibly huge lobster.
0: That's
2: (laughs) wild. It's a really big lobster. And she suddenly has to realize that she's going to be dependent on him. And I love the whole part where she tries to buy a fish from him. And he's just like, no, your money's no good here. You cannot buy what you need on this island.
3: The thing that fascinates me about it is I feel like a less complex director would have maybe made a story where there's an evil rich person versus a virtuous communist. But he's just as unlikable as she is.
4: Yeah, absolutely. He's a bastard. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. he's he's horrible.
3: (laughs) But even on the ship it starts them off on this kind of equal playing field in terms of who is less likable. It's like, yeah, she's annoying. But he is contrasted by the other people working on the boat who are all pretty chill. And it's like they get I'm being paid good money to do this. And like, yeah, this woman's a little annoying, but none of them seem to be quite as put out as he is. And it's like everything he's asked to do is this just like, onerous task <laughs> yeah
4: he'd rather bitch and complain than actually attempt to do his job at all he does come off very okay is is every task you're gonna be asked to do going to be a cause for a a meltdown on the in the kitchen
3: <laughs> and i love i love how his boss kind of laughs at him
4: <laughs> well he deserves to be laughed at because he's being a fucking child yeah they both are in in, in different ways yeah
3: Which I think makes this such a different film than if you had these two serious, mature characters in this position. It would feel way dark. Not that this isn't a dark movie, but I think it would feel much darker if there wasn't that humor and that childishness from both of them.
2: There's even that childishness when he it's like a simulated rape when he first grabs onto her and has her down in the sand and he's taunting her and telling her that he wants her to admit how much that she wants him and wants her to start basically talking dirty to him. And then when she finally concedes, he's just like, yep, no, not this time, baby walks off. And And she's so
3: horrified.
2: I love that. That's probably my favorite part of the entire movie. That was a scene I was not expecting.
3: Well, it's great because it's not I don't want to say it's not an actual rape scene because it definitely starts off and as an as an assault, but it's it's not a brutal
2: rape scene. It's like
3: it's subtly the power dynamics are still more equal than they seem to be.
2: He kind of reminds me of Bobby Peru when he comes into Lula's uh, hotel room in Wild at Heart. You know, that whole, like, say fuck me, say fuck me, in those fucking amazing close-ups of
4: Willem Defoe's mouth. (laughs)
2: Of his teeth? (laughs) Yeah. And then when she finally does, he's just like, Someday,
0: honey, I will, but I gotta get going.
4: I guess what kind of bothered me about the scene is, until recently, I didn't realize that we're not supposed to like either of them. I thought the movie wanted me to side with... Uh, Giannini's character so I guess that's why it was kind of a playful revenge thing with him telling her what to do until it got to that point then it became a little a lot more intense and a little more dark for me that's not to say that it undermines the film or anything like that it just kind of caught me by surprise like and then again but then again I'm not a used to of uh, Vert Miller's work it's definitely if you're not ready for it, it definitely kind of catches you by surprise and you can definitely kind of it made me realize that wait a minute, I'm not supposed to root for anyone in this film. It's not a it's 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 not a protagonist antagonist film. It is a antagonist antagonist film. And they're just antagonizing each other.
3: That's true of a lot of European art house movies in the seventies. So many of them have this kind of post World War II vibe where there aren't really those sort of black and white poles of good and bad characters. It's like everybody exists in these shades of gray. And I think a lot of those films show how characters that seem to be good or seem to be nice are also capable of horrible behavior and violence and things like that. So I I do think that's a sort of vibe of a lot of those movies. And if you're not expecting it, I can definitely see how it would be an unpleasant first watch.
2: Yeah. What's well, like watching Last Tango in Paris and thinking it's very romantic.
3: I can also see that and uh something like The Night Porter, it's I'm sure would just feel very confusing. It's like what are the relationship dynamics there because they're in that film and I think in Swept Away, it's it's like on one hand it feels like this domination, rape fantasy, but there are also a lot of scenes that feel consensual. Like there's clearly a mutual attraction between the two of them that you see from the beginning of the movie. It just, I think is kind of subtle or it's, it's very screwball comedy where it's like the way they're denying their attraction to each other, but the way it comes out is like they're five-year-olds and they're picking on each other.
4: Yeah, and that's the one thing she does do and play very subtle. Because, I mean, in a lesser film, the showing of them having a mutual attraction to each other would have been constant cuts to their faces looking at the other person in a somewhat desirable light. But this film doesn't do that.
3: It kind of does. So there's this scene in the beginning of the movie, the night before they go out on their, on their adventure that leaves them stranded. She stays up really late playing cards and there's this kind of suggestion in a scene where she's standing on the deck of the boat and for once she's quiet and the way that she's shot she looks really beautiful and he's standing on the other end of the boat and he whistles this kind of romantic song and they have this moment where they meet eyes and it's like okay okay. They, they like each other, or they're at least attracted to each other.
4: Or at least there's, like, not complete hatred.
3: <laughs> or if they hate each other, they still think each other are hot.
4: Yeah, it's like that old uh, grade school mentality of always you always pick on the ones you're really attracted to. To put it in TV terms, it's
2: Maddie Hayes and David Addison going at it at the Blue Moon Detective Agency, and you're just yelling at the TV, Would you fuck already? Please, and then the whole show just falls apart because they don't know what to do after that.
4: And a lot of shows have kind of fallen into that trope since the since Moonlighting aired is they constantly have the male and the female protagonist who you obviously know the showrunners want you to want them to get together, and they just want to mess with you for a few seasons of a will they or won't they?" thing. Oh, like Bones, yes, and Mulder and Scully, it, yeah. And it, it, you're right; it always goes downhill when they finally do get to that eventual point.
3: That's also kind of the premise of swept away is like they finally get together, but their relationship really is just this fantasy and how can it survive in the real world? But I think a lot of those shows that we've talked about, the reason they have that problem, it's, it's almost like filmmakers are excited by that tension and the possibility of romance, but nobody knows how to depict real mature relationships unless it's like Bergman style where they're just fucking miserable. <laughs> it's
4: like, it seems that all they do once they're in a relationship is just write them the same way only to add the addendum. Oh, they're dating now. It doesn't really change their dynamic as much. It just, Oh, they're fucking. Okay. That's different. I guess. I mean, it, and it now
3: if- there's no more drama in the show. Right. Yeah.
4: And if that was your only source of drama in the show, your show wasn't very good to begin with. If you were just hanging on to that little thread of drama, that's pretty sad. It doesn't say a lot for your for your skills as a writer.
2: I mean, to put in another TV trope type of way, once they're on the island, it's very much like an elevator episode of a TV show where you've got your two characters stuck in an elevator then they hate each other, you know, to your George Jefferson and your uh Archie Bunker are stuck in this elevator and they're going to fight it out, fight it out, and then eventually come to an understanding, be friends by the end. But then the next episode comes and that episode never happened, you know? So, but with this, they're, they're doing that thing. They're fighting, they're fighting. They finally get together. There is still that weird power dynamic because he won't be happy unless she is subservient to him. And she now, once she becomes subservient to him, seems to finally find true happiness, which is very much a twisted message. Which is demented. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But then when they get off the island, it's like, okay, we don't know what to do. And the whole thing just falls apart. It's that, you know, Maddie and David slept together. The whole thing just falls apart. But in this one, it feels like they do have that. They want to have that relationship, but they have no idea how to do it. And the pressures of real world are there. It's that, you know, after Superman reveals his identity to Lois Lane, she just becomes worried about him the entire time and, and she can't handle it. You know, and it's that same thing. Once you're back in the real world, once you're out of the fortress of solitude, you can't handle the real world pressures of these two characters being back in the normal life, especially because She's fucking married, and then, surprise, he's fucking married, and he's made no mention of a wife at all this entire film, so,
4: (laughs) ta-da! And and kids, right? And kids. And kids, yes. So, if you didn't think he was a fucking bastard before, I mean, he's got this perfectly nice wife at home where the movie doesn't give any hint that, like, she's a bad wife or just some shrew she lived with, just a normal wife, and you know and he still wants to be with her even after the i mean he still wants to be with after the fact so much so that when he gets uh, a million lira from her husband all you uh, know he just spends all of it i think all of it on this ring it's so sad it is but you're right she realizes that you know off the island they don't really have much you know the island was was really all that kind of kept them you know, solid as a, as a relationship.
3: There's also this kind of interesting angle where she's happy on the, like you could argue that she's happy on the Island because money is no longer in her life. And she has such a different dynamic, like with the world around her and with, you know, the other person that she's with because that whole equation that she's lived by is has disappeared. But I think on the on the inverse, it's sort of like he for the first time has power. So it's like their roles shift in so many ways.
4: Well, there's that one scene uh, in the film where she sees a boat. Yeah, and she hides from it decides to and then she tells him that, you know, there was I saw a boat, I saw a boat, but I decided to hide from it. And he goes, why did you do that? D- did you think he wanted to get off the island as well? Or do you think he was...
3: My interpretation of this, and so Vert Mueller makes fun of Italian machismo all the time, which is possibly why she <laughs> she was not very popular with Italian critics. His insistence that he have what he calls proof of their love in the real world, it does kind of feel like an element of machismo. It's like he, he wants to prove that he still has all the power in the relationship and that she's willing to be subservient to him, not just in private, but out in the world in front of everyone. So it's like he ruins
4: it basically. Cause he's afraid that when they get back to the Italy or whatever, his power is basically gone. I mean, they're on this Island they're for all accounts and purposes, the only two people on this Island. So, I mean, he's kind of considered himself the, you know, the president of the island. But when he gets back to Italy, he's a small fish in a big pond and his machismo ways ain't going to fly there. So I think that's one another. That's the main reason he's afraid to get off the island. Not so much for the the romantic aspect, more for the power aspect.
2: I don't think he's afraid to get off the island. He wants to get off the island to show off what a big man he is. And then he just shoots himself in the foot. He's the cause of his own downfall at the end. He's the cause for his own heartbreak. Because I think he genuinely loves this woman. Then also there is that. I want to show this woman off. I want to have her on my arm and show that a small fish like me has conquered this whale. And look at this, look at this that I've got on my arm and look that I can buy her this ring, even though I'm buying it with her husband's money. I mean, the million lira that that the husband gives to him is nothing to him absolutely nothing that husband could buy and sell generino a hundred times over. He could buy his wife, all the jewelry and this guy making this pathetic attempt with this little ring, gaudy ring that he's wants to give to this woman. Like, Oh, here's a symbol of my love. It's so pathetic. And I kind of love it for that. I love how this blows up in his face at the end.
3: I love this ending. Because I think if the movie really leaned into these kind of dominant submission, sadomasochistic power dynamics, I could totally see another director, maybe even like a French male director, having this sort of ending where he kills her and leaves the island or they both kill each other or something like that. And forcing them back into reality to get away from the fantasy to confront who they are in this society. And because of this society, it's, I think it's the best way you could end the film. Like imagine them together, like in, in a Hollywood ending.
4: <laughs> You're right. It would have been the easiest, the laziest thing to do just to like either kill her and, or kill themselves on the Island and then have them be over there and, and just claim it as a dark ending. But I think when she makes it more complicated by bringing him back to Italy, that's respectable. That's interesting. That's something that's, you know, that you don't see much because she's actually showing you that just because they found on the island. You know, you always wonder in the movie when the couple gets together and the film ends. you wonder, do they really, really stay together? Like, how long do they really stay together? And this film kind of shows you that it's not always going to be, you know, the fly off into the sunset ending. You know, there's going to be heartbreak albeit self-inflicted, because the guy made a bunch of stupid decisions, but heartbreak nonetheless.
3: I feel like that's usually how heartbreak goes, though, is people just make a series of bad decisions. But also what ties this so strongly to that tradition of 60s and 70s Italian cinema is he's definitely a variant on this character type called the Inetto, which it's basically this bratty, ineffectual, sad bastard male character who is just spoiled and wants everything his way and complains about everything, but doesn't ever take a lot of agency to change his situation. Like, uh, Marcello Mastroianni played that character type a ton. Definitely Giancarlo Giannini did usually in a slightly different way. And I feel like there are shades of that here where it's like, just because he wants everything to be his way, he kind of ruins things. And like Mike was saying, it's just so pathetic.
2: The scene that cracks me up the most is when she is, she's now head over heels in love with him after they finally have sex. And she makes that little, garland of flowers to put around his crotch.
3: <laughs> so good. And they're
2: <laughs> they're talking to each other by the firelight and, and making out, and she just starts bemoaning, like, oh, I should have been a virgin with you, and, you know, you should have been my first. And then she wants him to sodomize her, and he has no idea what sodomize means. It, I just so love that. So good.
3: Oh, well, I love that she keeps, she being Vertmuller, keeps sprinkling in reminders of their class difference and that is definitely one of the funniest ones
4: (laughs) again i didn't know where the movie was going to go when that was brought up but i'm kind of glad it didn't go where i thought it was going to go there was no butter on this island
3: there's rabbit fat though
4: there is yeah thankfully they didn't show him killing the rabbit then again it almost surprised me it was the 70s yeah when when she mentions sodomize me he doesn't know what she means it's I thought that was going to be another example of power dynamic because sodomy is is often used as a as a metaphor for a you know a power you're the person in power the sodomizer is the is the one in power and you know the sodomized is the is the weakling I guess you could say so I thought they were going to go there
3: but even if they had gone there she's the one who suggests it it's not It's not something that he kind of forces on her without a conversation. She explicitly says, this is what I want.
2: He's a good Catholic boy. He doesn't know what that means.
4: He's a good Catholic boy that sexually assaults and beats the shit out of women constantly. Which
3: is pretty standard for good Catholic boys in Italy in the 70s. (laughs) And today, too. I'd
4: love to see their catechisms.
2: Here come the letters. We have to talk about the ending, too. The whole thing of her in that helicopter. And that we don't really see the helicopter that much. I think there was probably a little bit of like a budgetary restraint type of thing. But then I also think that it's done very much on purpose. We do get one shot of the helicopter while it's in the air. But otherwise, a lot of it looks like him on the ground cursing God because he's looking up and he's cursing, you know, just pleading and crying and carrying on. And we know that there's a helicopter up there, but just the way that it is shot that we don't get the shot reverse shot. It looks like it is a man alone, powerless. And again, talking about that high-low thing, the camera is God's eye level, looking down on Jennerino as he's just pleading and carrying on. I love that again, he is completely powerless and alone in the universe. Even his wife has dumped him at this point because he's embarrassed her and everybody knows about it. Everybody knows about him buying this ring for this woman. He's almost, even though he was fucking her, it's almost like he's a cuckold now. And he's just this powerless person who is yearning for this other man's wife and will never be able to attain those heights that she's at.
4: He's had this taste of power for however many days that were on the island. And now it's been snatched from him so many times over. It's not just him being alone again without her. He's without everything.
3: I feel like it might also be suggesting that part of his downfall is in making his romantic feelings public because I think in so many of these films and certainly true to life in a lot of ways, infidelity in marriage was and still is pretty common it's maybe suggesting in this kind of implied way that if he had just kept sleeping with her and didn't try to have this grand public romantic gesture where he says to everyone, I'm leaving my wife because I'm in love with this woman. Like that's the problem is saying publicly, I have these feelings. I'm making this grand gesture. It's like, that's what makes him look like an idiot. Whereas if he had kept it secret and stayed in line with sort of social rules then he could have what he wanted but because he wants to be honest about it there he is left with nothing with that great line where he doesn't he call his the sea his girlfriend or something he's such a sad bastard by the end
4: (laughs) (laughs) i think that like the final shot of him is like a very pathetic shot of him just completely unkempt just as Terrible is like, looked even worse than he did on the island. A sad, sad, pathetic sack of a man. And I'm trying to remember when
2: he gets rid of the earring, because there's a moment where she puts an earring on him as if to imply ownership. And then I want to say in the screenplay that he throws the earring away, but really it's he throws the ring that he's bought for her away. So it's interesting that a, a ring plays a part in both of their lives.
4: She gives him the earring. On the island, yeah, because he like somewhat proposes or like they they talk about like getting married or something.
3: Yeah, and they talk about being together. Talk
4: about being together and for real. And they kind of uses the as the ring as sort of a pseudo engagement ring, like that. I think that's when uh, that's when he gets the earring. And she refers to him as looking
2: like Burt Lancaster from what? The Crimson Pirate or something. Yeah. 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 I was also getting moments of, uh, the sheik. I think when she talks about how she feels like she was raped by a gang of Turks and there's that whole, um, you know, the mythological thing of the saucy Turk and the saucy Arab person. And you've got that, um, uh valentino film the chic where it's like the stuck-up woman who then he has his way with and she suddenly changes you know that whole idea i mean we don't give rape enough credit for being a cure-all for women because it really seems to be at least in movies a lot of times like okay especially older films let's say yeah here you go we'll rape you and then your outlook on life will be so much better it's that whole prevention of
4: hysteria thing well here come the letters That totally, I think, is what the reference is. Well, even, like, the 80s, I mean, not to bring up television again, but the whole thing about rape leading to uh, a relationship, quote-unquote healthier relationship, was brought up in, like, even general hospital back in the 80s. I mean, people forget that... It's so gross. Remember that whole Luke and Laura wedding? Yeah. It all started because he fucking rapes her. Oh, my God, really? Yeah, he raped her, and... And then, you know, she, you know, I don't I I didn't watch the show back then, but she eventually like you watch f- it now? No, god no. <laughs> that would be Actually,
3: amazing. That that I would be I would have a lot of respect for that. Yeah. You
4: know what? I probably I probably did watch it then because I had a lot of babysitters who were stay-at-home women who probably watched a lot of soap operas. I distinctly you know, are getting off topic. Anyway, so yeah, it it goes into that and I'm it's it's definitely Kind of a really uncomfortable, um, scenario and cliche that was used, um, like when you said, like in the Valentino days of like forcible, forcible physical intimacy being used as the, uh, magic potion to get the woman to fall in love with the man. And that never ever sat right with me.
3: A really interesting inverse of that or like variation on that trope is somebody like Valerian Barowczyk, the Polish director who mostly worked in France. He has a number of seventies films that has a female character being raped and the rape winds up becoming a consensual act where it's almost like her sexuality is awakened, but then it, becomes sort of an exchange of power where she becomes the more powerful one and winds up killing her rapist while not being traumatized and victimized. But it's sort of like, by being able to commit that kind of like, it's it's meant to be very sort of allegorical and fairy tale like, but it's almost like I love the way he handles it because the women feel so empowered. And it's not like, they're raped, and suddenly they're brainwashed, kind of the way you were talking about with a lot of those TV tropes. But it also reminds me really uncomfortably of the convention that still certainly exists in some parts of the world, where if a woman is raped, she's expected to marry her rapist, because that's just the right thing to do. It's like, well, you had sex, so now you should be legally bound together for the rest of your life.
2: It's such a horrible topic, but I think it definitely merits this discussion because it is so central to this film. And it is one of those things, like I said, you thumbnail this movie and you go, oh yeah, these two people alone on the island. he rapes her and then she's in love with them. That's really making this a very, very basic description. There's so much more to it, but...
3: It's so much more complicated. Thank goodness. Yeah,
4: thankfully, yeah. yeah.
3: And I, I think we've also talked about some of the ways in which... She Vert kind of shows that it's not that imbalanced, like the scene where she asks him to sodomize her, and the scene where she gives him an earring. It's like she does all these things to show that she has agency and power of her own, and that in in more ways she's claimed him than vice versa.
2: And then she still, you know, when he doesn't know what sodomy means, she pretty much just laughs at him, which is okay because he's kind of a dumb shit.
1: Ciccolini here may talk like an idiot and look like an idiot, but don't let that fool you. He really is an idiot.
3: Well, she could have asked for it in other simpler words. Yes,
2: yes. (laughs) I kept (laughs) waiting for that, and I'm like, are you going to explain it to him? That doesn't happen, and I'm okay with that.
4: Yeah, I think it kind of would have taken the movie down if they would have been a little more colloquial with it. So we've talked about what
2: they did right in this movie let's go ahead and take a break and come on back with the discussion of maybe what they did wrong in the film and we can see that plainly in the 2002 remake from director guy ritchie and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages
0: sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons
1: there's got
2: to be a better way
0: Now there is, with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun.
3: I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image? Thanks, Good Job
0: Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast.
2: Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by.
1: How to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast. Part 1. The Quatermass Method. Simply recast a new actor in the original role. Hope that no one notices that a familiar character now looks completely different. This was also famously used in the James Bond films. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast at www.britishinvaders.com. How to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast. Part 1 The Quatermass Method Simply recast a new actor in the original role. Hope that no one notices that a familiar character now looks completely different. This was also famously used in the James Bond films. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast at www.britishinvaders.com. Join me, Jamie Benning, on the Film podcast, particularly if you enjoy stories like designer Nilo Rodis Jamiro convincing George Lucas to push him around to help gain the support of his crew on the ailing Howard the Duck Clam, the door opens. It's George. Everybody gasps. George makes a beeline to me. I'm literally back against the wall. Or hear puppeteer Tim Rose's emotional story behind that iconic Admiral Akbar shot in Return of the Jedi. I believe the war is something to be proud of, but not to celebrate. Or how Star Wars editor Paul Hirsch tackled cutting so many successful films.
2: The thing that I learned from working with the Palmen is that tension depends on clock. You need to have the sense that time is running out.
1: Maybe Oscar-winning sound designer Mark Mangini's insightful chat about his work on Blade Runner 2049.
0: Not a, not a single sound from the original Blade Runner in the new film. A great deal of inspiration.
1: That's the Filmumentaries podcast with me, Jamie Benning. Are you tired of
2: stubborn understains in your gusset? Do you suffer from a peculiar disease which only an expensive series of pills with appalling side effects can prolong, do you long for a professional movie website and podcast with a sense of humor, insight, and passion that hasn't yet fallen under the thrall of the big studios and basically turned into a soulless marketing hub? Well, we can at least do the third thing. Head on over to aftermoviediner.com for all your genre film needs, Americana, movie podcasts, comedy, incredibly large trousers, by fans for fans without added
1: salt, and relatively free of dripping. Our podcast is also available on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are found. The after movie diner. Come on in, won't
0: you? In the playground of
3: the rich. All rich people are the same. They play funny little games. Our job
0: is to smile like idiots. It was his job. My name is Giuseppe. Pepe for short. Would you show my wife the gym? Wait here. Your gym, madam. Anthony! It was her rules
1: pee-pee. Water and towel. Understand? Everywhere I <laughs>
0: it was about having it all. Pee-pee. I think I'm going to kill that woman. To that kitchen. <laughs> Until it was all swept away. We have landed on a deserted island. That's impossible, you idiot. Number one, don't ever insult me again. Number two, if you want food, you will have to earn it. <laughs> What are you doing? Sorry. Number three. You wait on me now. I want singing. Come on to my house, my house. I'm gonna give you candy.
1: Come on to my house, my house. I'm gonna give you everything. 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 Come
0: over to my house. That's enough. Everything.
2: All right, we are back, and we're talking about Swept Away. Lena Wertmüller understood the assignment. Guy Ritchie, not so much. What the fuck did I watch?
4: You watched a very abridged version of this film. You watched a film where... The person who wrote it, Guy Ritchie, watched the film, took nothing away from it of substance, and took only the basic beats of the story and thought, that's good enough. And, oh, it'll be brilliant. We'll cast Giannini's son to play his character. So that'll give the movie some credibility. It really, well, fucking, it was- didn't.
0: It, <laughs> it really fucking didn't. It fucking
4: didn't. It was, oh my god, this was... Oh, God, this was bad. This is really bad. It's it's always touted as, like, one of the worst films ever made. I think deservedly so. I've seen worse. I've definitely seen a lot worse. I, I've definitely seen a lot worse. I was expecting worse than what I saw, even though what I saw was really bad. I gotta start with the worst part of the film was just Madonna. But that's what everybody says. But that's because it's true. Her performance is just so shrill and just awful. She's no Mary Angela mulatto, no, no, because she's not believable as this character at all. you can tell she's playing a character, and what is Bruce Greenwood doing in this? Bruce Greenwood, who's just way too good for these kind of films way too good, way too good. I mean, I get why Elizabeth banks is in this it's It's probably early early role for her. Gene Triplehorn is way too good for this movie as well, yeah, and Gene Triplehorn kind of got off light she didn't really do much in the film and kind of got out early it gives like the tiniest bit of lip service to the class warfare thing it's only brought up like maybe a couple times and then kind of and the it, it was just really
3: unfortunate
4: yeah i mean what you guys i mean what you guys said about the scenes on the raft in in uh in, in the original basically is what he tried to do with this entire film he wanted to make it a screwball romantic comedy and He, it's like he missed the point. He really missed the point. It's, it's not supposed to be a screwball romantic comedy, which he, which he obviously tried to do and failed miserably because there's no chemistry between the two at all.
3: No, oh my god, it's embarrassing.
4: I didn't, you know, I didn't believe for a second that they were good. And when they finally, quote unquote, fall in love, I'm like, yeah, this is the most forced thing I've ever seen in my life. I don't buy it. I just don't buy it. It, it just. Mm. Yeah,
3: it's so okay, I have an overall dislike of remakes. And this movie, I think kind of helped me to clarify in my head, what my problem with them is. It's when a remake tries to do something different with the source material that I think can be interesting. I mean, Of course, the go-to examples are like John Carpenter's remakes and David Cronenberg, because it's like they took an original story and made it their own and did something totally different with it. But remakes, and I think this happens so often with horror movie remakes, they tried to make the same exact movie, but it just lacks any kind of heart or any kind of spark. It's just like a bad copy of the original. And that's exactly what this is. It's like, why? Like, what movie are you even making? Because to your point, the class commentary is turned down so low to the point that it like, Pretty much doesn't exist.
4: No, it's only brought up in like a couple conversations.
2: Come on, Sam. As of two thousand two, there is no class conflict anymore. We are all living equally amongst all of the world. There is no division between the rich and the poor.
3: Yeah,
4: it's certainly not worse than it was in the seventies. Yeah, and pesticides are growing, uh, growing profitable, helpful for the planet. You know, it's bringing all the classes together. So, thank you, Bruce Greenwood. Thank you. That's about as close to
2: social commentary as you get in this entire film.
3: I do think the choice is interesting at the ending, where it seems to suggest that he wants to keep their relationship going, like in the original, and the husband is preventing her from knowing that. So that's at least a different choice. I don't think it's really a good one, but it's – you could have done something (laughs) is all I'm trying to say. And I feel bad for Madonna because there are movies where I think she gives good performances or at least interesting ones. I think so too. I do. But like what happened here?
2: I really liked Guy Ritchie. When he first came out with Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels and Snatch, I was just like, yeah, this guy is pretty good. I'm really enjoying this stuff. And then, my God, did he fall off of a cliff somewhere. And I'm just like, who's that guy? Who's the guy that made those movies compared to the guy that made – I mean, I think Swept Away was his – third major motion third, picture? Yeah. yeah, I think it was. Wow! And then it's just been downhill, like Revolver. Say what you will about Swept Away, but Revolver, to me, is one of the worst movies that I've has been made. Oh I, my I god, either. it is awful. That's uh, Gerard Butler, right? No, no, I think that oh, is we- uh Rock and Rolla. This oh, one right, right was Statham, who I love, mm-hmm. and it was ray liotta just off his fucking bean is that Uh, when ray liotta
3: quit smoking
2: i I think yeah he definitely (laughs) needed what was it chantix at that time
4: (laughs) was it was it worse off his bean than in name of the king
2: uh it was worse he's more unhinged. i mean if you like ray liotta walking around in like little black bikini underwear this movie's for you and there's nothing wrong with that but if that's your thing Oh boy, oh boy, and it, it is just really trying to be those first two films and just feeling spectacularly. Like, it is like, what? How did I make those movies? Um, I guess I'll just, I don't know what he was doing. And then, yeah,
4: his career has seemed to be one of the great mysteries um, because he started out really strong. He's kind of been sputtering. Like occasionally, he he'll he'll turn in a, a decent film. Like his Sherlock films were okay. I mean. Oh, I forgot he did those. Inexplicably, in my opinion. He he was the one responsible for Aladdin, the live-action remake. Wait, there's a
3: live-action Aladdin?
2: Oh, yeah, with Will Smith as the genie.
3: I'm going to go back under
4: the rock I've been living in. It's safer under there. Occasionally, he'll bring out something decent, but he's never really made anything since then that's been as lauded. Like, he'll make something that'll get decent, like, 60% Rotten Tomato scores or whatever. But nothing to the, to the heights of like Lockstock or Snatch.
2: He has now hitched his star to Charlie Hun- Humdrum, which is really a bad thing. I mean, Wrath of Man, he gets back to working with, um, Statham again. And that was probably the closest thing to a decent movie that he's done in a while, but it's not good. It's, it's just not good. And yeah, it's like, don't blame Madonna for swept away, folks. Guy Ritchie is just as bad and just as culpable in this. And by the way, listen to the audio commentary for swept away 2002. It's him and Matthew Vaughn and is just Guy Ritchie being a prick for 90 minutes. That's all. He is so fucking obnoxious and all he's doing love or hate matthew vaughn i don't care but he's just picking on matthew vaughn the entire time vaughn's trying to bring some information about the film and guy richie at one point he refuses to talk because matthew vaughn won't sing a song sing along to the chicken song from the famous charades section of the film oh my god we were all remember that charades section because that was really valuable to have that in here Come on, sing along to this one, Vaughan. Go on. Come no, on, I'll let you stuff. off. Have you singed to this one? You're letting me off. Come on, there. Vaughan, come on. I'm not standing I think you should explain with well.
4: how you got
2: done with all that. I'll explain
1: it after you sing. I'll explain it if you sing. Give me, give me one line and I'll
4: talk. It. Otherwise, I'm not talking for the rest of the thing. Fine. Come it's on. In Don't be so
0: bloody <laughs> scared. Come on, Vaughan. Let's have one song. Come. come on. Come on, come on. Guy, would you sit down?
1: Be here this chicken snack. here. Come on. Come I'm, on. I'm not Just doing right. now. Just sit down. Boring. Otherwise, I'm not going to talk. Play the game room. Don't talk.
3: There's so many bad choices in this movie. Like I know earlier we talked about the bad choices that he makes in the first film, but this is
4: this is like a different level of bad. I remember when I first saw the commercials for this back in like 2002, it it, it was being sold as like this Lighthearted romantic comedy, two strangers on an island, they all fall in love. Oh, it's so adorable. I mean, that's basically what it is, but it's a lot dumber than that. And there's this inexplicable scene where I think it was just either Guy richard or Madonna trying to show off that Madonna still can be attractive and sing or whatever, even though it's not really her singing to edit to, to Delarisa's Come On to My House. It like it goes on for like what three minutes out of fucking nowhere. It went on for my entire life, is what it felt like. And it was just like, is this just an excuse for Guy Ritchie to show his wife off? And But he doesn't do her any favors. She looks rough
2: through so much of this movie. She was only 44, but he made her look like she was 64 a lot of times. I'm just like, what are you doing, dude? Like her on that little stupid stationary bicycle, it makes her look like her neck is as wide as her torso.
4: I'm going to defend just a little bit. I didn't think she looked that bad.
2: I don't think she looks bad. I think that he makes her look bad. And at 44, she could kick my ass when I was 24. I mean, she's amazing. And I still think that she's a knockout. But there were so many times where he just didn't know what to do with her and made her look awful. Yes, she's supposed to be a harpy. That's fine. Have her be a harpy but make her an attractive Harpy, at least. I mean, she just, th- he does things to make her look bad.
4: At least in the, re- I mean, at least in the original, she was an attractive. And in a way, the woman in the original kind of had a, s- a slight resemblance to Madonna. Yes, definitely. You know, maybe that was one of the reasons they decided to uh, remake the film, but it doesn't work at all. And the original film is about an hour and 40 an hour and 54 minutes. Hour and 54 minutes. This film barely clocks 90, I think. So it is rushed like nobody's business. Rushed? But it feels but boring. It feels so long. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it does. There were moments where I was like
2: when is something going to happen? And that you don't get that from the original.
4: I wasn't bored because I kept being astounded by how bad it was. I'm like wow, this is finding new ways to surprise me on how terrible a remake can fuck up the original's intent.
2: There were a lot of decisions that were being made where you're just questioning why she sees the boat, but then she doesn't tell him about the boat. And that's a major thing in the original is she sees the boat. She goes and says like, basically, aren't I a good girl? I saw this boat, but I didn't signal to them because I'm so in love with you. And we, I want to stay on this Island. And then that kind of upsets him and motivates him later to be like, oh, no, I'm going to signal the next boat that I see so that we can go back to civilization and I will show you off as this trophy that I have earned. None of that is there. You know, you talked about the Bruce Greenwood keeping the messages that he's sending to her away from her so she doesn't know that he's trying to get in contact with her. That's maybe the only good decision that this movie does because it's different. But then you have – him, uh Gennarino, not being married. And it's like, okay, well, that was kind of a major thing. And so that changes the tone significantly that he was not married and that she is married. You don't have that parity between the two parties when it comes to that. But yeah, the biggest thing for me is what you were saying, Sam, the lack of class dialogue in this film. I mean, there's a little bit of it, but my God, is it completely toned down. I mean, in the original... At one part, Genarino is he has bought into the party line just as much as she's bought into the party line. At one point, he's like, well, don't all you rich people just take drugs and have orgies all the time? I mean, he pictures them living this kind of sallow 120 days of Sodom type of life. And she pictures the poor, you know, rutting like animals in the filth. You know, so they both have their weird visions of each other. And in this movie, you don't really get what's going on between these two. I would much rather stay down below deck and hang out with that little cook guy. I think he's the most interesting character in this whole movie.
4: It, he, they really were. The, the staff down there were probably the most interesting, entertaining characters of the film. And sometimes I felt like he redid scenes from the original because he felt he had to. Not for any artistic purposes or like, oh, this is this is supposed to be here for a storyline to – for the storyline, no, I think he's just there because, okay, it has to be there. Like the scene where him and the, and the head kit and the head chef are, are leaning on the, over the deck at night. In the original, the chef finds in one of their rooms, uh, hashish and, and shows it to him. In this room, he finds cocaine. I'm like, okay, so what's the point of this scene? Why is it here? Is it just to like. Yeah,
3: it's like bad, bad rich
4: people. And and this is 30 years later. And oh my God, it's cocaine now and not hashish because cocaine is more, is more, ooh, (laughs) scandalous, I guess.
3: Well, and I think also it's a status symbol in a way. It's like uh, in the 2000s, anybody can buy some weed, but coke is expensive, or it can be. But it also. The more I think about it, parts of it remind me of those like Hallmark channel Christmas movies.
4: Oh my god, where, yes. Yeah. <laughs> where
3: it's like it's like successful type A rich lady has an encounter in the countryside or in some sort of rural place with this hot younger guy who's practical and it changes her life and she falls in love. It's it's like leaning in that direction, but it's
4: not those. I think there actually have been Homer movies around this without the political or whatever about this kind of thing where two people get stranded on an island, kind of fight and bicker and what, but end up falling in love. It's so formula. It is so formula and it's not supposed to be, it's supposed to be, Complex. But like,
3: how did he even screw up that formula?
4: Because it's rushed. Because they rushed it. It doesn't really take long after they get on the island for them to bicker and for them for her for her to fall in love with him. And the way she falls in love is like that quick. There's like nothing there.
3: That's how it happens in so many Hollywood movies, though. People don't get to know each other. It's like they get struck by lightning and they're suddenly Different
4: people, and again, that goes to Guy Ritchie missing the point. It's it's him thinking, oh well, it doesn't matter how fast they fall in love. Just you know, they fall in love, and then we'll get to the rest of it. She calls
2: him master so quickly. It should take forever for her to have to kowtow that much to call him master.
4: Nope, she just oh master. Okay, I'll call you master. No, qu- there's no pushback. There's no, no fighting all whatever. Nope. You're, you're master now. Okay. This
3: movie makes me wish it was just like an Overboard remake or something.
4: I could have used Eugenie Orterbez. I really could have. He would have been a lot more entertaining. Well, I went and I watched
2: that remake of Overboard because I... Finally saw the original just a few months ago. I was going through a, a Kurt Russell day and was like, Oh, let's see some Kurt Russell films. I've never seen before. So that Captain Ron, a few others.
3: Oh my God. I love Captain Ron. It's Thank great, so right?
2: Much. It's, it's the prequel for the escape from New York films that we never knew we needed that overboard remake. It's better than it has any right to be my god I enjoyed that movie I really I don't really I don't think I knew it. there
3: was a remake yeah
2: yes yeah. Anna Ferris as mm-hmm. it's a gender swap so it's the idle rich man and then the hard-working woman and it's very whatever year it was made. I can't remember. 2018. 2018. Yeah, Yeah, 2018. She's got multiple jobs. She's studying. She wants to be a nurse. And at one point, she gets hired to clean the carpets on this yacht where this a-hole has messed up all this stuff because he's just partying all the time. At one point, you know, it's not that him falling overboard right then type of thing, but that's where they encounter each other. And then when he does have the amnesia and she takes him, she basically turns him into her slave, like gives him a, a 40 hour jo- a week job that he has to do, makes him cook and clean when he comes home, has to do all of this other stuff. And I really found myself enjoying this movie. And what I really liked about it too is even though it's set in, um, Oregon, I think it is. And I thought it was, I thought it was Seattle. Well, I know they have a lot of Seattle. I think it was off the coast of Oregon. And then, yeah, cause there's Seattle Seahawks stuff all throughout this entire movie. But there's this uh, major thing about, you know, he's Mexican and speaks Spanish. And there's a lot of the people that she hangs out with are also Spanish speakers. So there's this whole thing about who understands each other and all this. And yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. And the thing that I like the most, though, is there are several times where He's complaining about stuff and complaining to other people that are around him. It's like, you know, oh, it's so tough having this job and da 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 And everybody else is like, yeah, yeah, it's really hard having a, to figure out a way to work and support your family and just basically showing him no empathy whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs>
4: and I, I was all
2: for it. I couldn't believe how much I enjoyed that movie.
4: I guess I'll have to check it out.
2: Yeah. I mean, don't go in thinking it's another Citizen Kane. You know, it's a remake of, of Overboard, but it's, it was delightful. I couldn't get over it. Well,
4: I mean, Overboard was no classic to begin with. And and coming off the heels of watching swept away remake. No, I didn't say it wasn't fun. I just said it's it's like it's not a movie that's like.
3: Oh, yeah. It's not like requiring any
4: brain power. <sighs> no, no, no. It's, it's, of- it's just a silly, fun movie. I actually found the
2: politics of it to be better than the politics of the original. And I guess that's because it's the man being exploited rather than the woman being exploited. And also I think who is it? was it was Gary Marshall in the first one. I mean, he always had some interesting takes on stuff, but um, I
4: think, I think it was Gary Marshall. Yeah.
2: And this one just felt a little bit more cognizant of what's going on with the world. And I, I, just really appreciated it and it was also nice the the guy that plays uh jonathan in the mummy movies was also in it and he's uh
3: oh, i love him yeah he's oh, terrific uh, right
2: john Hanna.
4: that's it yes, john yes. hannah you think he'll always be known as evie's brother
2: yeah, he's pretty much always going to be Jonathan from the Mummy for me. Whenever I see him, you know, no matter what, he could be a, you know, working in, in, uh, you know, the Caligula series or any of that kind of stuff. I'm going to be like, hey, hey it's John Carnahan. Jonathan, Jonathan, yeah,
4: <laughs> that's your lot in life, man. It it's it's a, it's a nice lot to have because it's a loved film. So I mean, and it's a beloved character. It's not like you played an annoying. It's not like you were playing Jar Jar Binks. You were playing, you know, a liked character. Oh, he's
2: great in that movie. He's even a scoundrel, and I like him in that. I mean, it's basically him fucking up constantly is what sets the whole thing in motion, but I'm fine with that.
3: Yeah, he definitely has some convincing screwball comedy vibes in that
4: movie.
2: Oh, God. Talk about screwball comedy when she starts knocking over all the bookshelves. All
4: the books. So good.
2: (laughs) So good.
4: The the way you're describing the mummy, I haven't seen it in a long time, but it just I'm like, oh my god, the Jungle Cruise was pretty much the mummy. The mummy plus Pirates of the Caribbean.
3: Wow, I haven't seen Jungle
2: Cruise yet. Oh, you're not missing anything.
4: Okay, good. I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. That's your right. For for the for the for the <laughs> Did you
3: just say that's your right? Yes,
4: it is. <laughs> you know what? I, I mean, like, I can admit, you know, when I like a film and it's not a particularly uh, widely enjoyed film, but I, you know, I've I've gotten to the point in my life. I'm like, if I don't like something or if I like something, I'm just going to say I like it, and not give a shit. I liked Jungle Cruise. I thought it was fun. I mean, Jack Whitehall basically was playing the John Hammond role. It, it pretty much it was kind of a beat for beat. The mummy film, you know, the rock had enough charisma and it was fun to just, you know, just enough to to make it work.
2: So let's talk about the 1972 film called La Cagna, which is also known as Lisa. which as I was watching Swept Away, it kept flashing on me like, oh, we should talk about this Marco Ferreri film. So even though it was made two years earlier than Swept Away, it shares a lot of stuff with the Bert Mueller film. First up it was based on a, a book by Ennio Fleano, Pardon my pronunciation. Uh, and I'm not going to try to pronounce the Italian title, but it was Malampus, the amorous metamorphosis of a woman. And I didn't realize that my boy Ennio had done so many screenplays and books and just what a – What a uh, uh, an incredible writer this guy was. There are so many things. Go look him up and you'll see that there are so many credits of things that you have seen and love from Italian cinema, and just he is behind it. But now, not only do you have his name on the screenplay, but you also have Jean-Claude Carrier on this, as well as Marco Ferrari himself. Two years ago on the podcast, we talked about Seeds of Man, and I haven't seen as much Ferreri as I would like to, but it was f- so funny to me that so much of his cinema has characters who are pushed to their limits, uh, even when it comes to just geographically. So here we have another film about a couple alone, and here they are on this island, and rather than her being shipwrecked, really, she's just basically – she leaves – the boat that she's on with all of these other people and just stays behind hides and stays behind on this Island where apologies, but Mike is going to butcher poor Marcello Mastroianni's name multiple times. Marcello mastroianni Antonio is there as a artist and he just wants basically peace and quiet and to hang out with his dog. And he's hiding from the world and now has this new person that is an intruder on the Island. And luckily he doesn't, treat her like a dick. He's just kind of nice to her and she's kind of a weirdo, man, that she starts to get really jealous of his dog to the point where she ends up killing his dog. Thank god we don't see that. And then she wants to take the place of the dog. I kind of love this movie.
4: Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot actually. Although the editing is very disjointed. It's kind of it it jumps All over the place. It's so
3: confusing sometimes. It is.
2: It is very confusing. This movie needs a really proper restoration, because I found yesterday, I found a version that has all of these German scenes that are cut into it, German dubbed scenes. So there's more to this movie, but even with that, there were weird cuts where I'm like, how did that end? What what did we see with that? Like, there's a scene- Yeah, like the dog. The dog, the- did you guys see a scene of a guy coming in and, uh, taking all of their olives away?
4: No, didn't see that. Oh. No. Okay.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> At one point, a plane arrives and this guy gets out and he's like, this is my island. Um, <laughs> which is great. You know, like, oh, my grandfather's the one that built this and da, 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 da. And he goes up to there are all these orange, uh, sorry, all these olive trees there and he just starts hitting them with a stick and, taking all the olives off of the the trees. And they're like, mister, can you not do that? We depend on these things for food. And he's like, no, no. And he just keeps hitting the trees and they start pleading with him. And at first I'm like, okay, they're going to murder this guy. And then master Antonio like, Hey, can we give you money for this? You know, can you please stop doing this? It's like, no, no, these are my olives. I'm going to do with them what I want to do. And then the scene ends, and I'm like, wait a second, what happened with that? But it was such a weird scene that was in the middle of that. I'm just like, okay, but yeah, there were a bunch of scenes in this composite version I was watching, where all of a sudden, people would start speaking German, German, and the quality would diminish of the, the picture, and I'm like, okay, why weren't we privy to this in the Italian version of the film?
4: Yeah, I mean, this version was, I mean, coherent, I at least could understand what was going on. It's just very disjointed and jumpy. I thought I was understand that he wanted her to play the dog after she kills the dog. But it, but it was her idea to play the dog. Well,
2: she's the one that reaches into the grave and takes the collar and then puts the collar on. So that, that's my impression that she wants that. And then when she starts licking his hand and stuff, I'm like, OK, I think she wants this. Yeah,
3: I think I missed that part. That was my impression too, is that it was her idea, but I had seen this a couple years ago and liked it more than I did this time around. I think watching it back to back with Swept Away was kind of a bad choice because Swept Away just has these really lively performances and all this comedy and this was kind of like swept away without the comedy or the satire. Like they're just so unlikable. And she gives off these, like, yes, I know the movie is called La Cagna, which is the bitch. And I, I think the bitch is, you know, obviously meant to be the female dog, but she's so bitchy in the beginning of the movie. It's like she, she doesn't get left behind by her friends who are cruel it's like she has a temper tantrum and gets off the boat and then just kind of expects marcello mastriani's character to take care of her and she just i I mean i love Deneuve. i think she's an incredible actress but her character is so unlikable in this
4: (laughs) sure her character is unstable um yeah and mastriani has a lot more patience with her than he has any right to um, because considering what she puts him through originally he is just very calm, collected Um, I don't think he ever raises her voice to her, even when she kills his dog No, he honestly, he's so
3: chill about her killing that Like the way the scene plays out if you haven't seen the movie, it's like she takes the dog swimming and The way that the version I saw, it's like they swim out really far and then it just cuts to the dog dead on the beach. So it seems like, oh, it was an accident, the dog drowned. And then she tells him, I killed your dog. And he's just so fine with it. But my reading of it this time around was that he just is really almost depressed. It's like he's left his family behind and he doesn't, he like can't seem to bring himself to care about anything, but he wants to live this kind of idyllic lifestyle that is this sort of like romanticized version of the past when you had to make all your own food and sort of live off the land. But even that is a lie because he seems to take the, the, the island is not far from the mainland And it seems like he goes to the mainland constantly to get, like, wine and good cheese. Because it's like they have all this food that did not come from the island.
4: He doesn't want to return to the the simple ways of the past. He just wants the solitude. That's all he wants. So it has nothing to do with, like, nostalgia. It has to do with just getting away from his family and just being by himself.
2: This is not the Mosquito Coast. We're not trying to prove something here with him being off this, and he's got a pretty sweet setup. He's got electricity, he's got a radio. And- I
3: love that house. He's and, got yeah, a stove. lives
4: in a dome, which is fantastic. It's so cool. We don't know he's married until... What, halfway like three through? three-fourths
3: of the way through?
4: Yeah. And then we suddenly meet, out of nowhere, his... Is it his son that comes to visit? His son shows up. Yeah. yeah. His son shows up, tells him that his, his mother attempted suicide and now is in the hospital. So he goes back to the island and goes to the hospital, but then also visits his friend and has, has lunch with him.
3: Michelle Piccoli. Yay!
4: So glad to see him.
2: And they start talking about Spartacus, and he had been talking about Spartacus on the island as well. And apparently... Lisa is the name of Spartacus's uh, main dog. squeeze? Yeah. Was it his dog? <laughs> oh, geez. I,
3: Maybe I misunderstood that subtitle.
2: I'm not sure
4: either. I mean, with this movie, you're not sure. He's an artist, and he writes stories. But there's one story he mentions that he wants to write that kind of threw me. Is this like supposed to be a subtle like hinting or something? Because he mentions... He wants to write a story about a monk that gets burned alive for fucking his dog. And I think that's definitely a subtext for the situation. He's an artist, but he's also a writer, I think. So he wants to write the the Spartacus story. His first drawing of this woman, I think the first day he meets her, he draws her. And she thinks he makes her look like a witch or something like that.
3: Yeah, she has this great line where she says, I'm not that ugly. <laughs>
2: Well, and it's Catherine Deneuve, so I'm just basically for 90 minutes, like, staring at the screen when you have the most beautiful cast up there.
3: Oh, yeah. And this is when they were together.
2: And Master Antonio, yes, he's gorgeous and everything, but Catherine Deneuve, for me, I'm just like, okay, whatever you want to do, I'm going to sit here and watch it because you are amazing.
4: They tend to get romantic pretty quickly um, on the first day. As you do.
3: Yes. When you're both of them together in the same room. Although that scene, I actually really like where she comes, she asks him where she's supposed to sleep. And he, you know, says, you can have the bed. And so she goes to get her, to get changed and comes back in this white satin, like negligee. <laughs>
2: it reminds me of the dress that Marion wears in Raiders of the Lost Ark.
4: And then he uh, he tells her to go back and walk out again.
3: Yeah, I missed your opening.
4: That's what he said. Uh, was this Sunset Boulevard opening? I think he says something to that effect. And I thought that was kind of a that was kind of a charming scene. I mean, they're, he's not a completely unlikable character. He's a sad character to to be, you know, certain. And he's a bastard for just abandoning his wife and children to just live this life of you know solitude. But there is a certain charm about the way they interact with each other at first. And I, you know, and, you, and I kind of, you know, you went with it, you kind of go with it. And I really kind of enjoyed that about the film.
3: Mastroianni has this charm and charisma that he just can't totally put away, which I think if you had cast somebody else in this role, like if Michelle Piccoli was, was cast in this role, I think it would feel a lot better darker and more ominous. But even though I love him so much, there's something weirdly kind of cold and detached about his character. And in a way it reminded me a little bit of the vibes from Pasolini's Teorema, where you have all these people in this domestic situation who are just really unhappy about it, and they kind of start to detach from the world, and that's what he reminded me of a little bit.
4: Well, I think he, he gets worse as the film goes along, but I think the death of his dog, death of his dog, definitely makes the the fall into the spiral um, a lot faster.
3: The dog dying and her taking over the role of the dog, it seems to initiate this like fantasy reality
4: that they both descend more and more into. I got the feeling from his reactions and all that, that he's not as into it as she is just seems to be going with it and kind of just playing to her, like just to appease her, I guess.
3: There are those scenes like when the soldiers show up, which is probably my favorite scene in the movie. And she goes to talk to them and he gets really serious and yells at her and says
4: like, you cannot talk to other people. That's another scene that was kind of out of nowhere, and that was another thing that suffered from the choppy editing. There was definitely more to that. And yeah. I wanted to see that. And it, But it's like she's suddenly talking to this soldier for a few seconds, and then he calls her over to – there are times where he's more into it than usual, but mostly he just seems, like, very resigned. In the
2: longer version, that soldier, for whatever reason, is reading a book about octopi – octopi – And then she's at his feet like a dog, and he even gives her a little biscuit.
3: Yes, I I love that part.
2: It's weird, because there's a little bit there, cuts back, and then it cuts again, and he's still talking about octopi from that book. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on with this? And then it continues on in Italian, so... Yeah, and I was reading that there's a French cut of this film as well. So
3: Yeah, so that's please. so that's where the title Liza comes from is the French cut.
4: Well when I when I searched this film on IMDb, the running time I saw was like ten minutes longer than the copy I had to watch. So I'm like, did Mike give me the right copy? Am I am I watching the right copy? But apparently it was. I think it's just that there's no
3: good restoration and no good English language home video release. So it's sort of like you're stuck with whatever choppy cut bootleg you can find.
2: Yeah, I mean, you take what you can get. It was weird because even the title screen, I saw multiple uh, screen grabs of the title screen. There was one that said, you know, I didn't even see one that said Lisa on it. It was La Cogna and one was just straight across and another was more stylized where it was the La up top and then Cogna below it. And I'm like, why, what is going on? Why do we have all these multiple versions of this? And I know the answer is because of the European market. So you've got your German version, your French version, your Italian version at least, and probably more than that. But it's like, please guys, can we have a definitive version of this? Can we, have somebody restore this thing. And for God's sakes, I would love to read the novel in English. Cause I, I read a description of it in Italian and then I translated it. And it's, there's this whole thing about how uh he's not an artist. He's a screenwriter to your point that he's just a screenwriter, just in quotes, and that she's an American. So there's this whole thing about, you know, her being very much a foreigner in their land and it's like okay i would have loved for that to have come across it was kind of that same thing we were talking about with swept away where i can't hear milanese versus sardinian accents and when everybody's dubbed in the same language i can't tell that she's supposed to be an american and they don't really say that she's an american so that might have been interesting if that's even in the movie because who knows what the adaptation made like him being a screenwriter, they might've changed it to
4: also adding that he's an artist. Well, with the interview I saw with the film historian talking about the film, he mentions that the author wanted to make this into a film and was very just unhappy about them making this film. And he had little to nothing to do with it. He was basically saying like the director was just disinterested the entire time while making the film and all that stuff. And I could kind of see it.
3: Yeah, there is that real sort of sense of I think ennui that comes through, but it also doesn't feel quite like a Marco Ferrari film.
2: It's not as outrageous as it could be. I mean, little touches like them getting the plane going and having it painted oh, I love pink it. <laughs> like a giant penis that's going to penetrate the sky.
3: But where do they get all that paint? Like the exactly? That's a good right? question. The thing that kept frustrating me is, like, with the food and the clothes that they seem to wear, it's obvious that he's making all these trips back to the mainland to get supplies. But when it comes to the end, their boat washes away... And he just sort of says, okay, well, I'll fix up this plane and then we can paint it. It's like, how do you know how to fix a plane? Where are you getting all the tools and replacement parts? Where are you getting the fuel? And where are you getting all of that pink paint? (laughs) 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 I do love it, though. That's one of my favorite scenes.
4: Another thing that I didn't quite understand, maybe you guys can explain it. Um, There's a scene he goes back to the mainland, goes back to to visit his family Uh, They're they're having uh, paella for dinner, but the daughter decides she just wants to have carrots. And she shows up at his house. And one, I don't know how she knew where he lived, because I don't think he mentions his address when he talks to her. I mean, I don't know. Did she follow him or whatever? Another thing is, like, the man is so subdued, in any other situation, the man would have been, like, screaming at this woman to get the fuck out of my house. What are you doing here? This is my, you know, go No, he invites her in. They have dinner. You know, the wife, the wife is like, they're so inviting to this woman, even though I think the wife knows what's going on. But he, the fact
3: that he doesn't allow her to talk to the wife and she basically acts the way that she like eats the food and lays on the couch. She's just she acts like a dog. OK, so she's a dog. That scene, to me, is the most comical part of the whole
2: film. Well, when the wife gets up on her knees and is like, go ahead and fuck me like a dog, I was like, whoa, okay.
3: <laughs> and, and that's that's what pushes him over the line. And yeah. He's
2: like, all right, I'm going. That's the bridge too far. Of all the things, that's the one. She's been through so much, and now she's she has to deal with it. Well, she's tried to commit suicide, like you said, but then there's even a moment where he's holding Lisa's hands and talking about her wrists, and it's like, did you try to commit suicide, too? That's what it really feels like from the, the dialogue that I'm getting.
4: Those two are definitely two damaged, uh, mentally, women dealing with a lot of issues. One is completely indefinite need of medication and psychological help, because I don't know if I can diagnose her condition i mean when though she just agrees to become this guy's dog hey what if that's her kink don't shame her don't yuck her yum no kink shaming but i think there's a little but i i think there's just a hint of mental illness in there not just a kink kink is fine but don't bring the kink to the guy's house uh, with his family. What if
3: that's part of the kink? <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah, the humiliation.
2: I mean, I was getting pretty turned on by those uh, really funky sunglasses myself. That those
4: sunglasses with. are great. Those Jordy Laforge sunglasses.
3: They're so good, and they're what they're like made out of wood.
4: Yes. He was surprisingly resourceful. The, I kind of, I kind of enjoyed that about the films. Is watching how resourceful the the men in the films are with what they have on the island. It was kind of interesting to watch that aspect of it. Um, Like working with little, but making, you know, so much. Obviously he had a little easier in this one because he had an amazing setup, unless it rained to which he just had to put like a a bucket under it. But he had a working stove. He had a coffee pot. Apparently he had a nice bed and a fridge.
3: Yeah. I love, I love all those scenes where he's like, it's self-serve. But
4: where's the power coming from?
3: hey, this is a Marco Ferrari movie. You you can't really ask too many questions.
4: Did I commit a sin of... With the
2: Nazi plane on the island, I kept thinking that this might have been a bunker or fort or something. Because, yeah, who builds that dome? And it, it felt very much like this was left over from the war. Even the shelter that they find and swept away. I'm like, was this left over from the war? I. That's my guess. The scene that you didn't see with the olive beater guy he makes a very big point to say these trees are 28 years old my father planted them when he was here and they start to talk about the war a little bit i think that also ties in with the nazi plane and i don't know why you wouldn't want to just hop into a nazi plane why you have
4: to paint it all pink i mean come on just just keep it the way it is see what happens i guarantee that'd be a more interesting ending than the and louise ending they gave us
2: and I have to apologize for, uh, butchering, uh, Mr. Mastro Ianni's name. Yes, I kept calling him, I kept calling him Mastro Antonio, like Mary Elizabeth. I
3: know. I, I was gonna, I was gonna say something to you, but I didn't, I didn't want to <laughs> interrupt you. You can flow.
2: shame me when it comes to that. Definitely.
4: <laughs> I wanted to say something, but then I thought, you know what? Mike knows a hell of a lot more about no, me than no, I do. no, no, no. Nope. Maybe he's right about this one. And I've just been reading it wrong the whole time.
3: On a similar note, G's in Italian sound like Y's usually, so it's Cagna, not Cagna.
2: Oh, okay, good. All right. I figured that I was saying that wrong as well, but... It's a
4: confusing language. So in America, it's Cagna West. What?
2: One of the few shows that puts the addendum inside of the show. So if you've made it this far, you can stop hate tweeting me how to pronounce these people's names. So I understand I'm butchering everybody. All right, we're gonna take another break and play a preview for next week's show.
0: Consular. I always thought a law degree
2: was a license to steal, but you, for one, hadn't really capitalized on it. I don't intend to take this up as
0: a trade. A one time deal, right? You may think there are things that these people are simply incapable of they or not
1: uh. i'll try and remember that good that's a nice ring have you set a date not yet you should be careful what you wish for angel
0: because we, we all have secrets
1: i have something to discuss
0: with you and i'm a bit scared If you pursue this road, you will eventually come to moral decisions that will take you completely by surprise. What do you think I should do? I don't know, counselor. Switch off the engine.
2: They're not cops. It's going to be all right. Are
1: you superstitious? How bad is it? Let's say pretty bad. And then multiply it by ten. been bad
2: that's right we'll be back next week with another movie that was uh released in various forms and we're talking about ridley scott's the counselor until then i want to thank this week's co-host trevor and sam so sam what has been happening with you
3: i have a podcast called twitch the death nerve we do episodes usually every two weeks and I think by the time this comes out, we should have a Godzilla episode up, which I'm excited about. I also am doing a bunch over at my Patreon, mostly essays and video essays. And the most recent thing I worked, I've worked i worked on that just got announced is I did a commentary for this movie called The Unknown Man from Shandigore, which is this totally insane swiss french post-apocalyptic spy movie that kind of has some alphaville vibes but is really incredible there's a serge Gainsbourg cameo and i was very happy to be involved with the release because this seems like a film that's been unavailable for a really long time and this new company called deaf crocodile is putting it out and I think they're going to do a lot of great stuff in the future and that you can get unknown man from Shandigor or at least you could pre-order it through vinegar syndrome who will be distributing their
2: releases. Now deaf crocodile, I think they're the guys who used to do, and maybe they still do Arbolos. So yeah, we've uh, had a couple of them on here before. Cause, uh, who's at Craig Rogers, who does all of the film restoration. He was posting little images from unknown man from Shengador and my God, it looks amazing.
3: It's so gorgeous. They're like, everyone is in it. Howard Vernon has a great role and they're just like, it definitely is one of those seventies Euro spy movies while also being really dystopian and i think i called it post-apocalyptic but dystopian is way more accurate and it just it's one of my favorite new to me films that i've watched in the last year
2: yeah i can't wait to see it i uh
3: i think you in particular will love it
2: yeah i think we might have to put together an episode about that next year
3: yeah
2: and trevor how about
4: yourself uh well i've been uh working with podcasts with a mutual friend, Chris Stashew, once a month. You can find me on uh, Chris's podcast, the culture cast. We each co-host a podcast called on Seagal, where we go through Steven Seagal's entire filmography. That's amazing. I don't know how to describe the chronology of the way we're doing it. Uh, We start from his newest film. Then we start, then we go to his oldest film. Then we go to his second newest, then we go to his second oldest and so on and so forth. till We meet in the middle. But it keeps making movies. How can you ever finish with the filmography? <laughs> well, that means it'll be a podcast that'll just go on forever. Oh, there you go. It'll outlive us all. God damn you, Seagal. Uh, you find that on Seagal.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Bad Vertigo. Uh, if you want to hate tweet me for my complete misunderstanding of every film on this podcast,
2: Well, thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. To inquire about advertising on The Projection Booth, email sales at advertisecast.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps The Projection Booth take over the world.